talk properly. I am deprived. I travel all over the country. I live in a place, I gotta drive like an hour and a half to get proper pizza. I grew up here, I know proper pizza. They just don't get it in the rest of the country. So I am glad to be here. I always feel warmly welcome, like Len always says to me, Paul, how you doing, man? Are you here to walk the walk and talk the talk? Yeah, I love it. I'm home. It feels good. So I do travel full time, and I have for many years, and I've slept in hundreds of homes, and I just love coming here. You guys have a special group of people. You're so kind. The last time I was here, I went out with all the elders for dinner in the middle of COVID. It was wonderful. And, uh, and it's, God has really blessed you guys. Uh, I just give a quick update and I want to dig into the material. I, am, I do do youth conferences. I'm speaking down at Team Missions in June. We're doing Youth with a Mission in July. I do have a small creation museum in New England. Uh, I'm trying to get all of uh, our stuff online and courses that people can take for free. So our first one up, Lord willing, is going to be, you know, what's wrong with human evolution? Did a space spec turn into a fish, turn into a rat, turn it? No, it didn't. Uh, when the alien thing was big in Congress and they were all talking about it, uh, this group, Awesome Science Media, went through all the different alien things that are out there and picked ours to do a campaign with. And we've reached many people just with that. We do have a Prove It series, and uh, I've done a couple of them here, and today we're going to do The Tower. Now, the story this morning is indeed a story of a tower, but it is also a story of many towers. It's a story of the rebellion of man against God. It's a story of God's judgment of man because of that rebellion. It is a story that literally has affected millions. It is a story that has affected you. It is from the past, but as you look in the book of Revelation, you see it is in our future. This is a very important, world-changing, history-changing event recorded in the Bible. But most importantly, it is a story of absolute truth. And the story begins as the flood ends. Noah gets off the God-designed ship, and uh, we good here, buddy? We're good, okay. And um, he uh, builds an altar, sacrifices to God, prays to God, and God tells him a lot of things. You're going to have seasons now, you're going to you know, be a whole bunch of different stuff going on, but the most important thing for this morning's discussion is God says to him, you will now go and fill the earth. That's God's command, fill the earth. Now Noah has three sons. Uh, Ham is Noah's kind of black sheep in the family son. He's the one that hit his 20s and said, I don't care if I'm in the sight of God. I'm going to do whatever I want. All right? You follow that kind of rebellion growing through Cush, Ham's son, and then coming finally to Nimrod, who also is rebelling against God. Nimrod goes to this area and he builds what is we would uh, describe as the very first city in the, the world post-flood called Eridu. And he really, he just was against God. And the Bible says, in the sight of God, in the sight of God, in the sight of God, Nimrod grew to be a mighty warrior. Now, in our macho society, we go, oh, wow, that's awesome, man. He's like a mighty warrior. You got to understand the context. 
There's no walled cities. These are Noah's descendants. They're worshiping God. There's no false gods. There's no enslavement. There's nothing like that. And so Nimrod grows to be a mighty warrior on the, in the land, and he says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower and not be scattered over the face of the earth. God told us to fill the earth. I'm not going to do it. I am not going to fill the earth. I am going to build a city, and it's going to be a city that honors me and honors someone else. He says, let us make a name for ourselves. Forget God. I'm the most important person. I'm going to be the first emperor in the post-flood world. He rebels against God, and he makes his own God. He wouldn't go for God's, the true God's stuff. No, he makes his own God. I'm not going to say the demonic God's name, but I would describe him as the goatfish God, and you'll see uh, in a little while why I picked that particular name to describe him. Uh, in the bottom of the ruins of Eridu, at the very bottom of the pile, is his worship center, where he built his altar, where he made a sacrifice in the middle. That's kind of what he's sitting in front of there. That's the area he would have made the sacrifice. To the left, uh, at the top of the picture on the left on the screen, that is the alcove where he would have put a, a stone uh, image of his goatfish god. And he communed with an extremely evil, evil entity in that place. He sacrificed to that entity, and he sacrificed a goat, what is called a goatfish, and that's why I call him the goatfish god. Obviously a fish, little thing hanging off his chin. The face kind of looked like a goat because of the little thing hanging off his chin. And uh, the question is, and you really can't answer this question, did that evil entity actually possess him? He certainly was open to that. Uh, he certainly communed with him in many, many evil ways. We don't really know if it possesses him, but what he does is very, very evil. So here, right at the bottom of the ruins of Eridu, is his worship center. There are 17 consecutive worship centers that he built above that as the city grew. Finally ending up with something that looked like this. And he wanted more. He wanted more. He wanted what we now call the Tower of Babel. Even bigger to worship his God. It's called the Tower of Babel. When you look at it linguistically, El is God. And it means the gate of El, the gate of God. But it is not the gate to the true God. It's going to be the gate that opens up a God that is not the God you want to worship. It's a God with a small G. It's a false God. It's a demonic God. We later on came to know Babel as confusion because of what God did to confusion languages and send them out so they wouldn't finish this project of evil. And he communed with that God. And this is not in the Bible. The next couple things are not in the Bible, but I'm trying to imagine what's going on in the conversations between him and this entity. Take the land, enslave them to build our city, force them to serve in our army. There were no armies up until that point, post-flood. Forcibly teach them my ways. And Nimrod, when this is all done, a sacrifice of blood will be required. No longer the goatfish. They must give their ultimate sacrifice. 
I demand it. And so Nimrod fights, and Nimrod conquers, and Nimrod destroys, and Nimrod kills, and Nimrod enslaves, and Nimrod starts to build the city. When Nimrod dies, his mother declares him to be the sun god. Now, would any of your moms declare you to be a god? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> My mother was deep New Jersey, man. She's like... <laughs> Shut up, get your roses. Uh, yeah, his mother declares him to be a son, the sun god and declares herself to be the goddess of fertility. Now, she's not only the goddess of fertility, but she becomes the goddess of war and literally taking on attributes of male-female stuff. It all ends up in there. She has an illegitimate son named Tammuz, and she says, because you know God promised a redeemer? She says he's the redeemer. This illegitimate son is the redeemer. Not only is he the redeemer, he's actually Nimrod come back from the dead. All alive, obviously, from the pit of hell. Yes, God did promise to Adam and Eve a redeemer would come. And he would come back from the dead. But it was certainly not her illegitimate son. Nimrod's rebellion produced extreme violence slavery, which hadn't been there, demonic-based idol gods, kings who think that they are gods, the slaughter of innocents on the top of the towers, literally the slaughter of innocents on the top of the towers, pure, pure evil. To summarize, you have now Nimrod the sun god, the mother goddess, usually of fertility, and the demonic god. That's kind of the summary of where the world is at at that point. This type of false religion spreads across the world, changes some of the names, still the same people, still the same idea. And when you look at the Word of God and you study Israel, what's happening to Israel, you see the same three. You see Baal, you see the Asherah pole, Asherah, and you see this demonic god, Moloch. Baal is an attack on God, a replacement of God. Asherah comes in with him all the time. They usually call her the consort, his consort. And if, he, if he's an attack on God and a replacement for God, she is a t- an attack on, on holiness, attack on marriage. She literally promoted lust. And, and Moloch, an attack on life itself. The Tower of Babel is absolutely true. As you study archaeology, as you study the spread of false religion, and God says, you know, I I cannot allow this to go on. I command you to fulfill the land. And so his judgment on those people was he confused their languages. Now, they leave, and they they grab their slave bowls, their slave ware. And you literally can look at these in all archaeological circles agree on this. They call it the BRB, beveled rim bowl. They grabbed those bowls because he had made it kind of like bakeries. And everybody got their slaveware bowl and they got their bread if they worked the full day. And literally, you can trace those slaveware bowls specifically at the time of Babel spreading through the world. You can literally prove the Tower of Babel from the slaveware bowls. Um, The pictures spread around the world, the pictures of the tower and the pictures of the false gods. This is the best one we have of the tower, seven seven different stages leading up to a temple on top 
where they did extremely vile things. Historical accounts clearly tell that it existed for real, that, that they know exactly what happened in that revolting place. The pictures of the false god spreads. Now, I want to show you something very specific because this shows up in the book of Revelation, which I'm going to do briefly at the end. Uh, this is the uh, Mesopotamian god, and he's holding a purse. Why is he holding a purse? Because in that purse, he keeps elements of power. Woo, there's power in that little purse. And you see his other arm, he's got a pine cone on there. He's going to dip that little thing into that elements of power, little purse, and sprinkle it around. Now, I know there's some guys thinking of jokes right now about purses. I know it. It's happening. So the demonic assistants in all the pictures, they also have that little purse. And they have a head that looks like an eagle. Why? Well, they, they basically were saying, look, you're going to be... I'm in charge of everything, I'm, I'm the emperor, Nimrod, and, and you're going to be one of my kings, one of my vassals, and I got this little demonic assistant, and he is watching you. That's why the little assistant's got the heads like that. Um, also has the little elements of power purse. You can literally trace the little purse around the world. You could change it to any god you want, but you, you got that purse right there, the elements of power purse. This is down in Mexico. This is even in India. It's hanging in the tree in this case. Uh, the elements of power purse literally can prove the Tower of Babel is true. The Tower of Babel is true. You can study the spread of false religion, spread of Nimrod's bowls, the ancient pictures. You can prove it from the study of languages. Now, uh, Noah spoke what we would call the original prototype language. Uh, it splits into family groups in the Table of Nations in Genesis. You can actually literally see where it splits, where they go. It's laid out right in the Bible thousands of years before we even studied this stuff linguistically. You see it nailed linguistically in the Bible. So it lists what languages went where, how many there were. And so from one prototype language, it spreads at the Tower of Babel to 78 family groups of languages. Now you study it today, uh, they're going to say there's 94 root languages. But the reason that their number is a little higher is because they count different kinds of sign languages and also what we would call constructed languages. This is actually a constructed language counted in the group. Don't buy that dictionary. You don't really want to speak that. But anyways, if you took out the sign languages and the constructed languages, you end up with 78 family groups of languages exactly as Genesis 10 described. And not only is it the perfect number, existing. You can actually see where the language groups went to. It's described in Genesis 10. And the groupings and the locations are absolutely 100% accurate. So you can prove the Tower of Babel just from studying the language groups. You can prove the Tower of Babel by studying the demonic gods that are portrayed in, in the stars. They were up there to perform sacrifices of humans. They were up there to Worship these gods in the stars. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Now, God originally creates the stars, the Bible says, for several reasons. Uh, obviously, best nightlight there is all around the world. But the biggest reason God says is, no matter if you are in the jungle or you are in the desert, wherever you are, you can look to the sky and say, wow, look at that. There must be a God. And they perverted it. They distorted it. And they made evil images connecting the dots to those stars. And this, what we would call Capricorn, recognized around the world as the same image. 
That is the goat fish sacrifice. Head of the goat, tell the fish. That is, Capricorn is the goat fish sacrifice. Aquarius is the goat fish god. It's the same image that they used, like you see the image on the right of that quote-unquote god with a little g, and they superimposed it on the stars in the sky. There is no evolutionary approach that can explain how they come up with the same pictures all over the world. This is like proof positive all of mankind was at one point learning these evil images and they spread throughout the world. Indeed, the worship of demonic gods portrayed in the stars proves the Tower of Babel is true. The worship of the demonic worship centers or the spread of the demonic worship centers. They go everywhere, Iraq, Iran, Egypt. Um, the oldest thing in Egypt is not a pyramid. It is a ziggurat. It's totally different. A pyramid's like a, a tomb for a king, usually. A ziggurat is a multi-layer thing, and at the top, they perform sacrifices. The oldest thing in Egypt is the Dozier ziggurat. Uh, Central America, loaded with all of them the same. They all have the same exact purpose. They spread around the world. The Tower of Babel is true. You could prove it from the study of false religion, Nimrod's bowls, ancient pictures, the demonic gods in the sky, the spread of the demonic worship center. So now I want to actually follow actual people. So God says, fill the earth. They disobey. God confuses the languages. They're forced to obey him and spread and fill the earth. So I want to follow the people. Now, in order to follow the people, the easiest way to do it is to look at DNA. Uh, National Geographic had a, uh, a project studying the DNA. They wanted to follow human migration around the world. So I want to show you their map that they released. I'm really on top of things with this stuff. And so I got their original map, and I am sure glad I did because they changed it. So this is the original map of the spread of DNA based on their studies. All I want to do is drop the Tower of Babel into the picture. What do you see? Okay, so clearly DNA tracing proved the Tower of Babel took place. All you got to do is drop the tower in the picture. So the evolutionist, and it conformed perfectly with what we saw in Genesis 10, the evolutionist got upset. You can't have that map. That you, you have to have coming out of Africa. You have to. It's the system. You better do everything according to the system. So they changed the map to come out of Africa. But the original map looked like that. And it absolutely proves that the Tower of Babel took place. They head to Egypt first uh, as they're spreading. Obviously, Egypt's like next door. So they get there first. They build the Dozier Ziggurat. It's not a pyramid, as I said. They worship the sun god. That Sun god worship goes with them everywhere they go. And uh, they, they had human sacrifices in Egypt in the first dynasty when the Dozier thing was a working evil place. And uh, while they were excavating it and redoing it, they found a box. There was all this rubble. And they pulled the rubble away and they're like, what in the world? What? Why is there like a box there? And the box was tilted. So they uncovered the box, and the box had two holes in it. They're like, what in the world is this? 
And they look inside the two little holes, and there's the Pharaoh Dozier, the sun god Pharaoh Dozier. There's a statue of him that they call the Ka. That is supposed to be where his life force goes. So you got the, the sun god, you got a statue called the Ka where his life force goes. He's staring up at what represents his wife, the fertility goddess. So it's the whole thing's traveling. Now, this Dozier ziggurat built exactly like the Tower of Babel using clay bricks faced with limestone. Imhotep, who was his kind of his high priest and assistant, perfected stone masonry to make it more permanent. And he lays out a system with a pyramid where the, the, the pharaohs are going to be, and then ziggurats in front of that. You will see this as it spreads. And I want to show you his building stuff because this is significant. They got knobs on the stones. The red arrows are pointing to the little knobs. They do not use mortar. And the things, the stones are slanted about 5%. So file that away in your brain. There's another group that leaves the Tower of Babel, travels by sea up to uh, kind of the coast of the area between Peru and Bolivia, and they go to the biggest freshwater lake they could find called Lake Titicaca, and they build an amazing city. You can almost call that the Venice of South America. Tinawaco, it's got a worship center right next to it called Pumapunku. And the ancient alien guys are really into this site. And they go there and they go, look at this site. All the stones are laying one direction. Well, we know what happened there, right? We know what happened there. It was the aliens did that. It's like on so many of their shows. And it was obviously an alien nuclear explosion that blew. I mean, it should have pulverized everything, you would have thought. But, oh, it blew them all one way. Now, if you actually go there and you actually read a geology book or a history book or you actually could look around and study a little bit. They're the worst researchers on the planet, the ancient alien guys. You see what? It's lying in a floodplain. And you study the soil, and to make it short, it comes from the bottom of the lake. And all you got to do is turn around, and when you turn around, you see a giant volcano with its head blown off, pushed into the lake, creamed the floodplain, and knocked it all down in the same direction. Now, that's actual research. <laughs> oh, no, it was an alien. No, it's not an alien. So they leave there. They go to Cusco, and they build the uh, Temple of the Sun in Cusco. And this, above it, they built, when the conquistadors went in, the Monastery of Santo Domingo. Now, very interesting about this building process. The pre-Inca didn't use mortar, they slanted it, they made it earthquake-proof. The Inca, 100% earthquake-proof. It's all that stuff still there. The Inca was about 80% earthquake-proof. The Conquistador stuff was a little, pretty much garbage, and it was terrible. And, uh, and the oldest stonework always is the most superior stonework. Uh, I took the monastery off inside of this Inca pre-Inca Sun Worship Center, uh, was a room. The floor was gold, the ceiling was gold, the walls were gold. They worshipped the sun god. When you go in the door, what did they use? 5% slant on the stones, just like Egypt. No mortar, knobs on the stones. 
It is exactly the same. They leave with the same sun worship idea, star worship idea, the same building techniques. They leave with the same everything. T-shaped metal clamps in Egypt where they had kind of unruly stones that would move a little bit. They'd like carve a thing in there, pour molten metal in there and make a T-shaped metal clamp spread literally around the world, everywhere. You could trace it very, very easily. So their building methods literally went all around the world just with all their ziggurats and everything else. The royalty had a unique thing. Uh, Egyptian royalty actually elongated their skulls, wrapped them with rope and cloth, and made the skull go longer to basically said, I got a bigger brain than you, so I'm in charge. All right, that doesn't work well, but that's what they said. Uh, Peruvian royalty, they did the same thing elongated their skulls. These are not alien skulls, but I discussed that in my alien program. They also mummified their rulers at death. Um, the Peruvian royalty was mummified at death. What's amazing is they use the exact same mummification methods, the exact same tools, the exact same formulas, the exact same jars, the exact same everything. The Egyptians mummified their dogs, a certain breed of dogs, the Peruvians mummified their dogs, and they were the same breed. Always. Yeah. Their, architect, their uh, agriculture, rather, in Egypt, absolutely incredible, amazing water supply. They got books written on their amazing architecture and development of water, etc. Uh, when you go over to Peru, you see an amazing supply of water, but it was very far away with a whole bunch of mountains in between and they just made absolutely incredible troughs. They brought it down the mountains, around mountains, and they dropped it into a filter. It took 40 days to go through that filter. They put zeolite minerals in there, which we use in our filters, and they dropped it in there for 40 days. It took the water to get to the bottom, and then it was perfectly clean. They also used that as a microclimate. The stones would heat up in the sun, and when it got, because obviously it's got an elevation to it, uh, at night when it got colder, the stones would stay warm and create warmth over the, the, uh, the plants. When they didn't have stones to work with, they made unbelievable trenches in beautiful shapes, and they actually filled the trenches with water, and the sun heated up the water, and they used a microclimate. Fifty kinds of potatoes, precisely engineered fountains to go all the way from the top of the Andes all the way to the city street and come out at the right pressure. It was all unbelievable. Drainage, unbelievable. Brilliant people. Very good food. Very clean water. Very evil. Does that sound like us? <laughs> well, not us, but you know what I mean? I mean, great food, great water, very evil. In fact, just as a couple examples... Got a sacrifice to the sun god, so if there's a weather problem, this particular weather problem, they sacrificed 269 children on the top of that evil ziggurat. Um, they leave that area. Well, they didn't, they stayed there, but they, some migrated north into Mexico. And I want to say just a brief thing here because you need to know this to understand what's coming next. Satan in the Word of God self identifies as a snake, that is his image he picked. And remember that as we go into this next image. Now, King Tut, I want you to look at him for a specific reason. King Tut's later on, and those are much later. This is his ka from his grave. This is where his life force was supposed to go. Now, what is he exactly wearing here? Is that like a skirt? 
No. When you look at it, he's actually wearing an image of a ziggurat. Sun shining on it because he's the sun god. The sun comes up from the bottom and the people walk up, you know, to die, basically. And then the snake comes down to be with man and it's the sun above and it's Egyptian, so it's a cobra. The sun's above its head. And so you file that away. This is King Tut, okay? Now, go look at Chichen Itza, the Mayan temple. The people go up, and the sun comes down. You see the sun shining on the stairway with the head at the bottom? The reason that is in the equinox, when day is equal to night, and that, that day, spring equinox, etc., the sun shines on the side of the building. The building's got those ridges, and creates a shadow on the wall. And so when the equinox comes up that day, you literally see the light kind of squiggle down to the ground where the head of the serpent is. It's the same stuff all around the world. The Aztecs, have you seen a pyramid with ziggurats in the front before? Absolutely. Uh, this thing was a thousand years before the Aztecs were built. We don't even need, know what name to use for the people that built this. Built exactly the way the Tower of Babel was built, using clay bricks. There's a million, a million clay bricks in that tower. All right, they sacrificed 50,000 a, a year. 50,000 people a year on the top of that tower and on top of the ziggurats in front of it. That's why the conquistadors were so horrified. That is why, when they arrived, that is why all the tribes around them hated them so much and joined the conquistadors to destroy them. And when they went there, the conquistadors found 160,000 skulls built into towers and fences to keep people out. They were protected by towers of skulls. Now, the book of Revelation talks about the mystery of the Tower of Babel. And it spreads throughout the world. The false gods spread throughout the world. The images spread throughout the world. What exactly is the mystery of the Tower of Babel? Revelation 17.5 says, The mystery of the great, the mother of the harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. What does that mean? Well, I think the great, it's called the great because it spans most of Earth's history. It's called the mother of because she gave birth to all the false religions. It's, she's called a harlot because she was religiously, obviously unfaithful to the level that was demonic. And she produced abominations and sacrifices of humans to demonic entities. The mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth. And it says that in the end times, her demonic elements of power will be poured out on the earth. We might be experiencing this. This is in our future. And God promises that she will be completely destroyed. Now, an important part to this is, is with Israel, when you study the Bible, you see God holding back the evil. When the people are worshiping God and they're right with God, they're holding back the evil. We have seen this time in many of our lifetimes in this country as well. God held back the evil. 
The churches were full. We were the missionary powerhouse for the world. Our lifetime. Morality was important. Very important. And certain things were forbidden. Certain things were absolutely forbidden. Now, in comes, just like it was in the rest of the world, here in America, in comes the spirit of Babel. The worship of false gods. We began to worship ourselves. We began to worship the earth. We had people in higher education institutions of learning saying things like this. There's no God. Everything can come from nothing. No. Life can come from non-life. No. False gods were established. The foundations were shaken. Next, with God gone, in comes the spirit of Asherah. What was blessed by God within the context of marriage between a man and a woman, now becomes the pursuit of pleasure with no regard for marriage whatsoever. And the goddess of instant pleasure arrived in America. And America now, as a result, is absolutely full of broken homes, broken marriages, Broken ladies, broken gentlemen, broken children. But we will honor God. Even though sexuality is everywhere, we must honor God. We must honor the spouse that God gave to us. We must be a godly example to our children. Even though sexuality is everywhere, we will choose to honor God. And now, sadly... Nothing is forbidden. It's actually celebrated. We have gone as far from God as you could possibly go, practically. And next came the spirit of Moloch, was always known as the destroyer. If Asherah produces lust and immediate pleasure, well, the logical, obvious result always is children. And Satan wants to make them an inconvenience, and Satan wants to destroy them, and you're destroying a whole entire generation. I have a relative that picked a style of life that does not honor God. Uh, This side of my family is gigantic. That side doesn't exist. Literally. Gone. Because, you know, when you follow what God says, a marriage between... uh, a, God, a godly man and a godly woman, he says he will bless that. He will bless that. In comes the spirit of Moloch. God called this evil the abomination, and clearly it is so evil that it is a sign that a nation is lost to him. And in America, in America, millions would perish in the shadow of Moloch. But you know, nations that were evil came to God. Those Christians praying in those catacombs alone in darkness in Rome, they came to God. That nation came to God. 
What do we do in the midst of the insanity that we live in? What do we do? In biblical times, they destroyed Baal's altar, but we don't really have those stone images. They dest- destroyed the Asherah pole, which was an attack on holiness and marriage. They destroyed Moloch's statue, that he was actually a furnace. Attack on life itself. What do we do? I studied Hezekiah because he was in the middle of all of exactly what we are in the middle of. But probably a little bit worse for him. He was a broken, broken man. Now, the Bible is so clear in the importance of you living your life in the sight of God. It says it all the time in the Old Testament. Nimrod did this in the sight of God. He did this in the sight of God. You study the kings, you got Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, doing evil in his 20s in the sight of God. You got Hezekiah, 25, when he became king, doing godly things in the sight of God. And what you guys that are in your 20s and 30s need to understand is the decisions you make now are the foundations for your life. And the decisions you decide in your 20s can foul up your life forever. Please remember, you make those decisions not on, oh, I'm in charge now, my parents, I'm I'm of age. No, you are in the sight of God. I want to encourage you to make godly, God-honoring decisions Because God says he will bless those decisions. This man in the picture, Hezekiah, that's kneeling down before the Lord, he was a broken man. His father, Ahaz, was as evil, evil, evil as it got. He put evil altars, it says in the Bible. You can look at uh, 2 Chronicles 28 through about 31, 32. But it starts with Ahaz. He put evil altars, it says, on every block in Jerusalem. He was so evil, and God says this in the Bible, this is not me, this is in the Bible in 2 Chronicles. He put his children through the fire. He killed his children. The horror of that, Hezekiah would have watched. He would have been forced to watch probably his older brothers. And they died because of his belief system. And here is Hezekiah, who also had a godly grandfather that spoke into his life. And he's kneeling there as a broken, broken man, raised in the midst of the biggest group of chaos you could possibly imagine, from every direction. He's a broken man. He's scared Why in the world is he scared? Because Sennacherib, leading the Assyrians, just took northern Israel and are coming for him next. Now, they were the monsters of the world at that time. You like take the worst terrorist you can imagine, crank that thing up a couple times, you get the Assyrians. So they take northern Israel. They kill most people. They enslave 100,000 of them. They strip them naked, and they march them to what is now northern Iran, a thousand miles through the desert naked. But not the leaders. They don't do that to the leaders of the northern Israelite area. They get to kind of ride on the chariot. 
So they take a hook, they put it through their nose, and they drag them a thousand miles to their new location. And he's coming for Hezekiah next. Now what's interesting is, is and we have lived in fear, right? We've lived in fear. We, I mean, admit it, admit it. We have lived in fear the last couple of years. But when you look at him, I really should change this word, scared, because he's really not scared. He's like confident in God. He submitted his fear to the power of God and trusted God with, to, 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 to take away the problem. And, and so he's surrendering his fear to God. He's confused a little bit. You can see in the text. <clears throat> Should I have a, some kind of political solution? Should I like fix this politically by like turning to another power like Egypt? Should I resist and get the hook put in my nose and drag behind the chariot? And he begins to build a tunnel so the water can come in. He put, builds another wall. But the biggest thing is he's doing is he's meeting with God. He's meeting with God. And the solution that he chose is the solution we need to choose today. And so as God tells him what to do, God tells him, go through the temple. Two weeks to search every room to purify the temple. We also have temples, right, that are supposed to be pure before God. He tells him, purify the temple, cleanse the temple, Break down every family altar. They destroyed every single altar built by his dad. And there's family altars in our lives, too, that come down through the generations. Break down the family altars, and Hezekiah, come before me. In the midst of this chaos, I will speak to you. I will direct you. I will empower you. And I want you, I couldn't come up with a better word than shine. I want you to shine when you kneel before me in the temple, you're going to be the first one to kneel. You're going to be the first one to worship. You're going to lead people in worship of me. Hezekiah does those things. And God's promise of deliverance as 185,000 Assyrians surround Jerusalem armed to the teeth, God says, the Lord sent an angel, annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers and Sennacherib lives. He goes back from a destroyed battlefield on a horse to his temple in Nineveh and his children kill him in that temple. All that is historically verifiable. How do we respond? I want to encourage you to do the same thing Hezekiah did as he was living in the midst of the chaos. Cleanse the temple. Take the time to examine the rooms of your life. Go through them thoroughly. Get rid of the unclean things permanently. Cleanse the temple. Examine your heart. Break down any family altars that still exist in your generation. I had mega family altar in mine. My relatives all buried between the Holland Tunnel and Lincoln Tunnel in a cemetery that I could barely find now. All of them owned towers, many in West New York, 
New York City taverns, they own towers. They own taverns. Alcoholics, every single one of them. Through every generation, it was a family altar of drunkenness. I am the first non-alcoholic. The very first one of my generation. My children are not alcoholics. They serve the Lord. Because I knew that must be an altar I did not let continue. I could not, for the sake of my children and my grandchildren. Examine yourselves. Clean the temple. Break the family altars. Come before God and ask Him, God, would you give me a vision for my life right now in the midst of the chaos? Would you take the fear away in the midst of the chaos? Would you give me wisdom, Lord, to raise my children as godly children in the midst of the chaos? And when you go before the Lord, he will help you and enable you to shine. 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 Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful people that are in this room. You have forgiven their sins. There are people here, Lord, who are confused, who maybe don't know you as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would open up their heart to you today. God, thank you for being here in this room with the same power and the same holiness that you had during Hezekiah's time. God, we want to serve you. We want to live the pure lives that you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would encourage you, if you need some kind of prayer, if you're struggling raising your kids, if the kids are if they're struggling with something, if you need some kind of prayer, don't be ashamed to ask. Don't be afraid to ask. In fact, we're going to have another song, I think, right, Pastor? If you need some prayer, you want somebody to pray with you, just come sit in this front seat. And somebody will join you to pray with you. If you need prayer, just feel free to do that. Because, you know, the staff here, the pastors, they care about your souls. And you need to be delivered from some of those altars. And you need to have God come into your life and just flow through you. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. As we close in the doxology... Um, if you want to come forward, come forward. We ask the ushers, get ready to take an offering for Pastor Paul. But consider what he said. History, is, the world is ripe. The world is under the control of the evil one, right? Or so it seems. But God is greater. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Serve the Lord. Honor the Lord. If you need to more and more, do it. Let's sing. Let's, uh, let's pray if you need prayer. Please stand as we close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.